Uh, greetings to friends and allies, uh, to neophytes of Planetary Tantra, crew members of the Gaia Navigation Experiment, and all those of you elsewhere out there who care to listen. It's uh, November 18th. 2011. This is John Lash recording a 55-minute talk, and I'm entitling this talk, Who is Fit to Survive the 2012 Breakdown? Question mark. Now, some of you who follow my work and the website, or who may be involved in the Gaia Navigation Experiment, will uh, know that I've been doing a series of ongoing talks with Thomas Malone on his podcast, Grok the Talk. And we are at our fifth talk currently with a goal of doing eight to ten talks on the subject of right action and contraviolence. Some of you involved in this experiment so far and newcomers may wonder about how I mix things up sometime because uh, we have been talking, Thomas and I have been talking since the beginning of this year about Planetary Tantra and the Gaian Navigation Experiment which is underway since June. So what does right action, what do right action and contraviolence have to do with these Endeavors, these adventures and uh, experiments, and how does it all fit together? I'd like to use this talk since uh, today I was scheduled to to do an interview with Thomas, but we seem to have missed the opportunity, probably for IT internet reasons. I thought I would take this opportunity to speak to you directly, so that we don't lose our momentum. And in this talk, I just want to clarify and correct a number of things and put the current series of conversations I'm having with Thomas into a perspective. First of all, I just want to point out that the proposal of right action and counter-violence, contra-violence, can be found on metahistory.org if you click on the right action button. And uh, I introduced this subject some time ago, actually in 2009, and then in the fall of 2009, I believe it was, I wrote the two essays, Open Season on Predators 1 and Open Season on Predators 2, for which there is a third part now in progress. So this basically is the introduction, textual introduction to counter-violence, contra-violence, excuse me, to contra-violence on my website. And you'll find there in the first essay, Open Season on Predators, in the first of the two, you'll find there the definition of contra-violence. So basically, I could put the... Gaian Navigation Experiment, which is an aspect of Planetary Tantra, and Contraviolence, which involves the practice of right action, onto the same page for you in this way. Consider both the Navigation Experiment and Contraviolence to be magical strategies, warrior strategies, for facing the current upheaval in society on the planetary scale and for facing the breakdown of the social order, especially the economic and political order, and the reign of the authorities in Gnostic terms. I like to use this term breakdown, so I'm going to say 2012 breakdown rather than talk about raising of consciousness and attaining some kind of uh, enlightened awareness or ascension in a moment, in the moment of a planetary shift. I'm not going to use that syntax. I'm just going to talk about the obvious fact 
of a breakdown, a breakdown of the power of the authorities. And whatever higher shift, whatever shift into higher consciousness may be possible now and in the coming two or three years depends first on facing the breakdown. So the Gaia navigation experiment is one way of using the power of imagination to navigate through this breakdown and to move toward a sane and sustainable path for our world. I've said enough about that in other talks and in my ongoing, uh, written about it in my ongoing crew notes, which can be found on teleste.org, T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I.org. So what does contraviolence and right action have to do with this? Well, the strategies that I'm proposing would unfold uh, on two fronts. One would be the imaginative front, as it were. That is where the Gaia Navigation Experiment and Planetary Tantra are located. The other front is just the existential aspect of this breakdown. That is to say, the historical, social, existential reality of what's happening. All of us in one way or another, even at close, either at close range or or by extension, by implication, are going to be facing this uh, breakdown and it's going to impact each and every one of us in one way or another. So that is the importance of the viewpoint of contraviolence. Contraviolence is a stance taken in regard to the violence that is facing us now to the violence coming toward people who do not want violence how do you face if you are someone who does not want violence who wants peace and coexistence and even love and cooperation mutual aid to use the term of Kropotkin if you're someone who wants all that how are you going to face the violence that's being directed toward you and others who want that by those who plainly and simply don't want that. So the option to look at contraviolence begins with this simple insight, which you may or may not accept. If you don't accept it, then you can go happily on your way. The insight is that although we might assume that most people in the world, including yours truly, just wants to live in relative harmony with others, to uh, resolve our differences peacefully, to enjoy each other, to have a good time, and to thrive and survive, even though a great majority of people may feel that way. There are some human beings who do not share that viewpoint, and what's worse, they do not want others who have that viewpoint to succeed. So their policy is not a live-and-let-live policy. Now, if you accept that this is the case on the planet right now, has been for some time, but is reaching uh, a catastrophic culmination, an endgame scenario, then you might want to take a look at what I'm calling contraviolence. And to define contraviolence, I would read uh, the paragraph from Open Season on Predators, Part 2. Contraviolence is the use of violence by people opposed to violence who, nevertheless, regard a nonviolent response as inadequate in certain situations. The term contraviolence signifies action taken against violence, equivalent to it in strength and effectiveness, not passive nonviolent resistance. But the action so taken does not necessarily involve direct contact physical enactment of violence. Rather, it involves activating aggressive and lethal force equivalent and superior to the violence opposed. And I add, to understand such force and how to apply it requires first a close look at the nature of the violence to be defeated, that is, the unique deviant behavior of intra-species predation. And beneath that line, you'll see the face and posture of the Andean puma, 
who is uh, sort of the poster animal for contra-violence and right action. So I'd like to steer this little interim talk I'm making to fill in for the missed interview with Thomas toward that unique question, toward that paramount issue, that paramount topic, the topic of topics, as Don Juan called it, the topic of predation, especially predation within our own species. And it's my intention to bring this talk around to that point in a new way and put a new point on the blade by the time I've finished. First of all, though, as moving in that direction, I'd like to make a few corrections and clarifications of what I've said so far in my in the series I'm doing with Thomas, uh, of which we have done, I think, four or five talks. First of all, I want to clarify that I do use this term intra-species predation, which might also be expressed in another way as same-species predation. In other words, it refers to the animals of one species, such as uh, baboons, preying on animals or members of their own species. This is not the norm in human evolution and not, uh, not the norm in animal evolution, excuse me, of which humans play a part. Uh, it is certainly the exception. The norm in animal evolution is interspecies predation, that is to say, cross-species. You might prefer the term, the terms same species and cross species to clarify what I'm talking about here. So in cross species uh, predation, we see a great part of the drama of symbiotic balance conducted by the many species who belong to the Guyan habitat. Uh, my cat uh, preying on a mouse or a bird is an example of cross species predation. Now, there are other cats around in the neighborhood where I live in the Campo. I think they're feral cats, probably, who come and try to raid the house once in a while. And so there are cat confrontations, very rarely fights, but shows of threat, threat displays, as they're called, and cat confrontations on the porch. However, these uh, two feral cats, stripy and orange, uh, don't prey on my cats that would be same species predation. Uh, there might, in an extreme case, be a fight between them, and sometimes cat fights can be lethal, so it's possible that in a cat fight one cat would kill another. But generally speaking, same species predation among the felines is extremely rare. So I've slurred my words now and then when I use the term intra-species. It's a little tricky to say intra so I think in the future I'm just going to say same species to make it perfectly clear. Also, I'd like to correct something that I said in a recent interview with Thomas regarding the timing of the upcoming events displayed by the movement of the lunar perigee in the constellation of the scales. Now, I have a master timeline for this, which runs from November 23rd until... 31st of March, 2013. So it runs entirely through the year 2012. In fact, as a Turton and Sky Diviner, I would say that the most significant, one of the most, uh, more significant events, one of the highlighting events that occurs in the celestial code uh, during 2012 is the activity of the lunar perigee in the scales uh, a remarkable series of events in which the lunar perigee hits the right pan of the scales four times, the left pan of the scales four times, and then at one critical moment, it hits the fulcrum or center of the scales. And this would be 23rd July, 2012. I previously, I believe, said that that date was the 6th of July. So let me get it down for the record. On the 23rd of July, 2012, this ongoing process of the lunar perigee jumping back and forth between the pants of the scales 
hits the center. And I would interpret that to mean the point of centering, the moment. It's not something to predict what will happen. But it is, uh, this system is not for predicting what, is, what will happen. This system is for gearing your imagination and your action to what could happen and what may, very, very well may happen given the predictable course of human events. And so the possibility of the 23rd of August, 2012, in terms of the current planetary breakdown is enormous. It's a moment of, it can be a moment of tremendous orientation and even a moment when the process of writing the balance begins to become evident. Right now, the balance in human society and in the set of systems by which society is run, that is to say the governmental economic systems, including the military, including the media, all of these systems are out of balance and they are rigged in such a way as to favor the same species predators. Those human beings in our midst who do not want to live and let live, who do not want to let other people go their peaceful way, but to in, who insist upon forcing their violence upon the rest of the world. Right now, as we enter the breakdown of 2012, the balance of the scales, or I should say more correctly, the imbalance of the scales plays in their favor and has been playing in their favor since they rigged the game about 100 years ago. It's a significant fact that the lease, the 99-year lease on the Federal Reserve Building uh, expires in December 2012 because the Federal Reserve was, as some of you may know, the Federal Reserve is a cartel of private banks who hijacked from the American people and from the Democratic Republic of the United States the right of those people to print their own money and control their own currency. And that occurred in 1913. And then they moved into the Federal Reserve Building, which, uh, whose lease expires at the end of 2012. Uh, interesting little detail there. One of the massive continuing upsets that we're going to see throughout the year 2012 will be the rocking back and forth of the scales in a struggle to regain some kind of equilibrium in social affairs, the struggle to right the scales and to therefore have a fair society, a fair legal system rather than a criminal legal system, a fair form of capitalistic free enterprise, which is a good thing, rather than a rigged form of crony capitalism and corrupt fraudulent practices undertaken under the name of capitalism. So these issues are up on the screen right now. These issues are in the minds and lives of everyone who takes a conscientious view of the world situation and who wants to see a good outcome of the chaos at hand. I'd like to point out that uh, in this clarification I'm making, additional to the clarification of that date, a couple of other names I mentioned in the last talk. In the last talk with Thomas, I introduced the subject of ethology, E-T-H-O-L-O-G-Y. This is a tremendously important subject, a genre of science that emerged in the 19th century, largely through the work of an eccentric uh, Estonian baron known as von Uxku, E-U-X-K-U-L-L, and he's worth looking up and investigating a little bit. Most intelligent, uh, educated people know what anthropology is, uh, but very few people know what ethology is, and it's equally important to our understanding of the human condition. So I had mentioned in that previous talk a number of names, and I want to clarify these names because my pronunciation was not in all cases uh, as clear as it could be. The main book on ethology, and the only good one that I know, is called The Parable of the Beast. 
and it was uh, published in uh, 1960, no, 1968 by John Bleibtreu, B-L-E-I-B-T-R-E-U, Bleibtreu, or Bleibtreu, Bleibtreu, I don't know exactly how that's pronounced. Uh, additional to Bleibtreu, I mentioned Robert Ardre, A-R-D-R-E-Y, Robert Ardre or Robert Ardre, I don't know how that's pronounced, who was an important writer on animal behavior and notoriously known for his book, African Genesis, which is a thesis I reject, although I accept Ardre's brilliant and beautiful observations of animal behavior. He was a master of observational ethology. Additional to him, you can name a few other uh, stars in the in this genre, namely uh, Nino Tindbergen, Nino Tindbergen, excuse me, T-I-N-B-E-R-G-E-N, who wrote the book on instinct, and Conrad Lorentz. And that's about it. There aren't many people in the field of ethology. There should be some women there. I have probably overlooked them, and. Uh, I regret that I haven't had time to research this further, but there certainly must have been some women scientists, uh, visionaries, and naturalists in the last 150 years who have uh, picked up on the vision of ethology. And finally, of course, you might ask the question, well, could we include Charles Darwin in this crew? Well, we certainly could. Darwin was, in his own way, an ethologist, but I would suggest that he was a failed one and I would like to come back to that point at, at the uh, at the conclusion of this talk so those are some points of clarification on and correction uh, on this uh, regarding this ongoing topic you might uh, wonder if I would include uh, Sir David Attenborough in this category, he's a very well-known uh, British scientist, trained as a scientist, largely made his living doing documentaries about nature, and, a source, and of course represents to many people in the world a kind of uh, godfather figure in regard to uh, our understanding of the natural world. Uh, he's done many, many documentaries, including, including The Blue Planet, and one that I particularly like, The Private Life of Plants, I would say that David Attenborough is certainly a great naturalist and uh, relatively sound in his views because he comes from the point of observation. He's a very skillful observer and articulates very well what he sees. I don't know what his agenda is. I don't know if he's a Darwinian evolutionist or not. But he's not an ethologist as such. I would point out that Ethologists are true ethologists are rare because an ethologist is a naturalist, a scientist who makes detailed and, and highly scrutinized uh, observations about animal behavior, also about the behavior of insects and the behavior of microorganisms at the molecular level. You'll find a lot of this in the parable of the beast and who makes these observations in a particular way in order to bring to them the question of how these perceived animal behaviors might relate to human behavior. So the beautiful thing I like about ecology or ethology, excuse me, is that ethology has an open agenda, as it were, or at least it should have if the ethologist is practicing correctly. Uh, you can be an ethologist and go to nature with questions about behavior. How does the behavior of the predatory animals, like the felines, bear upon human behavior? This is a key issue in contraviolence and right action. And I've taken this issue from an ethological background, and I carry forward this issue in an ethological manner. It is I do not necessarily bring an, a preconceived agenda or program, uh, for instance, having Darwinian evolutionism in my back pocket. 
the script of Darwinian evolutionism there always to refer to uh, in the sidebar or uh, to read it off uh, a monitor the way that uh, a politician reads a speech. No, not at all. Uh, I am discovering Gaian ethics along with you at this moment in time. And I am plotting a course into the heart of Gaian ethics. As I do so, I use ethology and the neutral, open-field, ethological viewpoint to ask questions, to see what we can learn and discover when we compare animal behaviors, deeply understood animal behaviors, with the aberrations and exceptions of behavior in the human species. And that's why ethology is such an exciting, uh, it's an exciting venture in knowledge, a vector in knowledge, you could say. And I invite you all to feel this excitement and to get involved with the inquiry that I am now developing. Um, I'd also like to make another point uh, as clearly as I can. To me, this is such a crucial point regarding the attempt that I'm making to develop this message and to offer an understanding of Gaian ethics, which in effect is something that we must invent in the process of discovering what it is. I would uh, offer this keynote regarding that process of invention. I would say that I've heard a fair amount of talk about the coming planetary shift the 2012 meme, the end of the Mayan calendar in December 2012. I disagree with that calculation, by the way. It's been recalculated and advanced to another 200 years. I believe that the corrected calculation is more consistent with other sacred calendric systems, such as the Egyptian, uh, the Hindu, and the Aztec calendars, not to mention the, the master time clock of the Dendra Zodiac. So I take caution and some distance in some of the outlandish claims that I've heard about the raising of awareness and the, the ascension into some kind of higher dimension of consciousness that could or might happen in the immediate future. I would point out something that others among you may have noticed consistently in all of the talk about 2012 shift, especially the talk in the vein of New Age spirituality giving a, a positive evolutionary spin to this uh, consider for instance uh, Barbara Marx Hubbard who was one of the earliest uh, proponents of a master model of a spiral line spiral line of ascending evolution, uh, which is also a model I entirely reject. Uh, and in this spiral of ascending evolution, uh, typically humanity is placed at the leading point of the spiral, as if we in our species are the focal point of the dawning of some great uh, power of cosmic consciousness. And it's all about raising awareness. It's all about consciousness. It's all about the mind. It's all about awakening the mind. It's all about achieving higher consciousness. Well, I say it isn't. I say that this is a syntax error which can be gravely misleading. Certainly, we need to inform ourselves of the circumstances of the current global breakdown. Every intelligent person needs to educate themselves, especially since 9-11, Everyone needs to read Dr. Judy Wood's book, Where Did the Towers Go?, to see a truly scientific, consistent, conclusive, scientific, forensic, forensic investigation of that event. We need to learn what was the Rothschild Crime Syndicate, how was it founded, how was it established throughout different parts of the world. We need to know what is the fraud of the Federal Reserve Bank. We need to know... Uh, about fractional reserve banking, the fraudulence of modern Wall Street techniques and tactics such as derivatives and credit default swaps. All of this is fraudulent and criminal activity. 
we need to inform ourselves about the corruption of the authorities in the government, the corruption of people in Congress and the Senate by corporate organizations, uh, and we need to know about the uh, many, many aspects of the rigged game of the authorities in the world today. And all of this is an education. I wouldn't call this raising consciousness or raising awareness. I would call it a sound education in the challenge that is facing us as individuals and as a species. The great opportunity of the 2012 breakdown is not a breakthrough in consciousness, but it's an engagement of conscience. Conscience is the word that's missing. Conscience is the operative term in right action and contraviolence. Conscience is the operative term in what I'm teaching. And so we're facing a challenge to achieve a planetary or global conscience that would be seated in each individual person. And conscience means that you do things with knowing of what you're doing. You do it knowing what you're doing. So there is an educational process required for you to act properly on your conscience. Conscience must be informed. Right action, which is the use of transpersonal rage and violence against predators, must be done in a framework of education. I speak of elucidated violence, elucidated violence rather than blind violence. The great mistake of the past is that when a social revolution has erupted, it has broken out into blind violence because the members, the people swept up in that revolution did not have the education to understand how to direct their violence toward the right targets. And so elucidated violence is an aspect of conscience. If you're going to use your rage and your capacity to defend yourself and the human species in the correct way, in a way that is consistent with Gaian ethics, then you're going to have to educate yourself. And this is the process by which we develop conscience. So I think it's about conscience more than it is about some kind of mental, spiritual, uh, transcendental awakening. You know, I don't talk in those terms and I don't use that syntax. My counterpart to all that is the Gaian navigation experiment. I talk about the power of imagination and undertaking an experiment with imagination. Integrated and interactive with the imagination of the earth, not on our own. This is the premise of the Gaian navigation experiment and of planetary tantra in general. So I do talk about the imagine, using the power of the imagination and engaging the power of conscience, and that is it. And if we do both those things, then consciousness will take care of itself. But there's a lot that is done in the name of raising consciousness and putting some kind of rainbow glow of spirituality on things, which I think is misleading and deceptive and at the end of the day bound to be extremely disappointing. You know, so you, you could almost say that this, uh, there's a kind of trinity here. Being a, an ally of the goddess, I love to do things in threes. It's, it's amazing how much of the goddess power and goddess wisdom comes in threes and multiples of threes but the three the trinity uh, in question here would be education imagination and conscience you see that is a very powerful foundation for the right kind of action to take us through the current breakdown and all those three things are totally synergetic. Education works with imagination, works with conscience, works with education in a, in a, in a, in a tricyclic kind of synergy. 
I would say that uh, one of the most uh, devastating things that's happened to our species over the last, say, 150 or 200 years, I don't want to go back too far, but just look, uh, let's look from the time of the middle of the uh, 19th century when the robber barons came into, pa- into play, when a lot of the uh, economic and financial criminality that is now rampant was, was set up, when, uh, I don't have to repeat that story, uh, but also when some key insights about the human condition emerged, such as the science of ethology, which later came to be repressed. And if we go back this 150 years or so and look at this, we'll find that it has been difficult for the, for the, uh, the intelligent and well-meaning person who would like to operate in behalf of society and for the benefit of the human species to know the right choice to make because human conscience is to a certain degree a social factor. We all have the power of conscience within us is a deeply private and subjective element but the way in which your conscience develops, the way in which your sense of responsibility towards society and your fellow human beings takes shape depends hugely on education and we have been severely miseducated in the last 150 years not to mention going back even further one of the exciting tasks that we face now is a re-education process a very rapid re-education process that every individual must undertake for himself or herself This is a responsibility if you want to be involved in the current planetary breakdown in a positive way, to know what you're doing and to be able to read what's happening. For instance, uh, recently I was very alarmed to see that people in the Occupy movement were going around with placards uh, carrying the word socialism and I don't know, probably also the word communism. Uh, and claiming that uh, these terms were going to be helpful in getting us to a solution regarding the terrible criminality and fraud of the global banking system. Well, those two, the, the, the young people, sincere though they may be, who are spouting these words, uh, let's have more socialism, in our government, in our society, let's uh, have communism instead of capitalism, are coming from a really bad education. And they have no idea what socialism is or communism if they are using these words, these catchwords, uh, and this rhetoric in this manner. Uh, so I point that out as a vivid example. Any young person who wants to see change in the world today and have a better future for themselves who's out parading a placard that says so, has socialism written on it, their conscience is not being directed toward, uh, will not be directed toward the right solution by this slogan, by this term. Uh, socialism is, is a game of manipulation. It's a psyops that's used by the planetary controllers and the, uh, the cartel of international bankers, they love socialism, they love communism, and they use those movements for their own purposes. And if you don't know that by now, you have no business being out on the street protesting. You should go occupy a closet. And while you're in there, do educate yourself, please, about what the reality of these terms means and what it has meant historically. Go look at socialism in Stalinist Russia. Go look at it in uh, Maoist China. Is that what you want next in the United States? Well, some people do. And those people are the criminal banking syndicate slash corporate governmental powers who have created the unfair situation on this planet in the first place. And of course they set up and promote socialist and communist movements. Those are traps they use. And again, 
don't want to sound repetitive, but you cannot engage your conscience with the current challenge unless you have properly educated your conscience. So what I'd like to do in the remaining 20 minutes is give a little piece of education in my own words, a piece of crucial piece of education and re-education. And this concerns the subject of social Darwinism. So let's call this John Lash's 15-minute spiel on social Darwinism. It could be said that Darwin, Charles Darwin, was an ethologist in that most of his work is simply observations of nature, such as birds and breeding habits of nature. In fact, Darwin did not present the theory that the human species is descended from animals. That was something that was made of his work. So when he wrote of the origin of species by natural selection, he was just presenting his male mind concept about how the Gaian symbiosis works on this planet with the production, appearance, thriving, and disappearance of various species. It was just one man's opinion. And in fact, his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, had presented a generation before him a much more convincing view of Gaian symbiosis and natural selection, if you want to call it that, which was actually deeply based on a recognition of the erotic aspect of natural processes. So there's a lot of uh, eroticism in the writings of Erasmus Darwin, and the seeds of the, the theories that Darwin is known for can actually be found in a purer form and in a more Gaian-friendly form in the work of his grandfather, who was an amazing genius and polymath, an inventor of various devices, uh, just uh, really a brilliant person, uh, very much worth investigating, Erasmus Darwin. So anyway, what happened with Darwin is that he happened to be born and uh, to come forth with his uh, ethological writings at a time when the atmosphere was ripe in England and in the, and in the Western world for the fraudulent and criminal predators of the banking system to forge an ideology for themselves. They had great plans to take over the world in the middle of the 19th century, but they didn't have a control of the mass mind. So they were smart, they were educated people in their own way, and they knew that they needed an ideological program to drive their criminal predatory takeover of human resources, which is today reaching its endgame. The people that I'm referring to would have been at that time, of course, some of the American bankers and robber barons and their compatriots in England, and especially those who were the founders and directors of the Bank of England, who took their fractional banking system practices from uh, uh, an English uh, theoretician of, uh, of economy. I think that would be Thomas Law or William Law can't remember, and also from Malthus. It was from Malthus that comes that uh, we have the phrase uh, survival of the fittest. So Malthus had a population theory. Thomas or William Law had an economic predatory system, and the Rothschilds had the money to found, uh, to, to pull this all together and to organize this. The Huxleys and the Darwins had an eugenics, uh, an elitist eugenics program on their plate. And all of these things converged into a mass, an ideology of the master race during the time of Charles Darwin. And so Darwin's work was swept into the game. As a matter of fact, uh, the notion that uh, Darwin observed prey, predator, actions in nature and then inferred from those actions that the same type of dynamic occurred in human behavior is entirely false. It's, it's a construct of this group of people, uh, eugenicists, population, so-called population experts, self-named population experts, and lawyers and bankers. 
And they all conspired very deliberately in, from the middle of the 19th century into the early 20th century to forge an ideology that would be the ideology of their dominance and to justify and legitimate their dominance. And the brand that they put on this ideology of dominance is survival of the fittest. So when we look at nature, we see a survival of the fittest. The tiger brings down the goat that cannot run away, whereas the rest of the troop of the goat managed to escape. Therefore, tigers preying on goats and uh, lions preying on gazelles uh, are examples of a culling of the species. The, those who are not fit to survive in the gazelle tribe because they are weak or because they can't run fast enough are taken down by the cheetah or by the lion and so forth and so on. You've all heard this story told many, many times in many variations. So we have the survival of the fittest scenario, uh, which actually comes from Malthus. And now we're taking something that is supposed to happen is said to happen in nature, in the non-human world, and we're turning around and saying, wow, this is the way it happens in the human world. The first thing we can all understand in our re-education about Darwinian socialism and the eugenic policies that are attached to it is that this claim is absolutely wrong. It is not only a deliberate lie and a deliberate perversion of the facts of nature, but it is not even based on the facts of nature as it claims to be. And I would like to point out to you exactly how that is the case. I consider that what I'm going to say now is one of the most important things that I could possibly teach in setting up the framework of Gaian ethics. And it is one of the most single most important things that every responsible person needs to know to break out of the false paradigm of the, of the dominator ideology that was falsely imposed upon the world at the, from the middle of the 19th century onward. As I explained in a previous talk with Thomas, the ideology of the domination of the fittest and the survival of the fittest is just a con. It is what the globalist predators use to legitimate their own dominance of society. There is no equivalent whatsoever to their behavior in nature. And I'm going to point out to you now exactly why that is so by giving you the direct evidence. Giving you some direct evidence. At the time that uh, this Darwinian view of the struggle of for existence was uh, coming into prominence, it was promoted by Thomas Henry Huxley, who was known as the bulldog of Darwin. So, in fact, Huxley took Darwin's ethological observations and he pushed them and shaped them and misshaped them and misrepresented them and over-extrapolated them and falsified them to turn it into an ideology of a kind of master race system. And the masters in this system would be the financial masters and the, and the government and corporate authorities who now rule the world. They needed an ideology because no movement can succeed on a large scale in human society unless there is a myth or an ideology attached to it that fires human imagination. So they invented a myth for themselves called the Darwinian survival of the fittest. Just at the moment, and, and for instance, uh, Thomas Huxley wrote around 1850, Life is a continuous free fight, and beyond the limited and temporary relaxations of the family, the Hobbesian war of each against all is the normal state of existence. So this is a flat-out statement that conflict and everyone warring against everyone else is the normal state of existence. Obviously a lie and obviously false, because if that was the normal state of existence in nature, nature would collapse into complete chaos. If that were the normal state of existence in human nature, no civilization would be possible. So it is 
a statement, a totally false, unfounded statement coming from this paragon of science, Thomas Huxley. And what is the point of this statement? What is the inferential intent of this statement? The intent of it is to psyop you and to convince you that there is no such thing as mutual aid and cooperation in nature or human society. Well, Kropotkin was standing in the crowd when these ideas emerged around 1850 or 1860, and he was absolutely appalled, as uh, John Bleeptrue explains in uh, his book, The Parable of the Beast, in the marvelous chapter on Kropotkin, which is called Sociology, Chapter 7. And Bleeptrue explains that in order to answer Huxley and the Darwinians, Kropotkin, Prince Kropotkin, who was a Russian aristocrat, began a series of books, began a series of articles entitled Mutual Aid Among Animals, a Factor in Evolution, which appeared first in 1890 in a magazine and then continued to achieve, continued to attain a considerable amount of evidence, of uh, interest because it, it provoked controversy. And here was someone who was a contemporary, uh, a brilliant uh, observer of nature, uh, a budding naturalist, someone who had a fantastic career in front of him as a naturalist in the vein of uh, Humboldt, von Humboldt, and as a natural philosopher in the vein of Goethe. Uh, and he undertook this, by the way. Kropotkin undertook this entirely of his own initiative. He was, of course, pushed into a military career. He could have had a position among the power elite. But his humanity and his conscience led him to undertake a different course of destiny and to educate himself about nature and to actually go into the wilds of Siberia and observe nature and as a humble participant in the natural world use his pure perception to see how nature behaves, how animals behave, and then apply that to the human condition. This is what he did. He's a very heroic figure in that sense. And this is what Kropotkin wrote in one of his papers in objection to the Darwinian theory of survival of the fittest. I have observed that even in those few spots where animal life teemed in abundance, he's talking about Siberia, which is a very harsh climate, I failed to find, although I was eagerly looking for it, that bitter struggle for the means of existence among animals belonging to the same species, which was considered by most Darwinians, though not always by Darwin himself, as the dominant characteristic of the struggle for life and the main factor of evolution, unquote. Now in this short quote, there is a phrase that is in itself enough to completely explode the false Darwinian paradigm. And that phrase which Blaibtrau has uh, underlined is among animals belonging to the same species. Contemplate that phrase for a minute and then consider what you have been told, how you have been educated regarding Darwinian evolution and natural selection. You have, I can tell you, what you will be able to discern by the power of your own mind. And when you discern it, you will realize that it is self-evident and it is outrageously self-evident how phony, false, and contrived is the domination of the fittest. We are misled to believe that because there are seemingly brutal prey-predator behaviors in nature, nature red in tooth and claw, the dripping jaws of the lion, the lion pack bearing down on the body of the wildebeest that has been captured in a chase. We are led to believe that because many, many examples like this occur in nature, that the same type of laws must 
operate in human society and must be essential to human nature. But just stop for a moment and look at the malicious trick in this assumption. Those who enforce this assumption are taking an example of behavior that does exist in nature, but only in cross-species predation. And they are applying it to human behavior as if it worked in same-species predation. And that is absolutely and entirely false. First of all, as I've pointed out before and will continue to emphasize in talking about Gaian ethics, examples of same-species predation in nature are extremely rare and only occur under situations of great disorder or great stress. So although we do see certain species in nature preying on other species, we don't find them preying on their own species. However, when we look to our, our life as human animals, as the exceptional case in Gaian symbiosis, not the superior case, as the exceptional case, we see a different story, don't we? We see that some human beings prey on others. This is same species predation. And we see the people who have concocted and they're just bankers and lawyers and scientists with arrogant, um, unbelievably arrogant, uh, blind egos driving them who did this, who contrived this phony ideology of domination. What we see them doing is claiming that they're right that they have a right to prey on us because of natural law correlated to the prey-predator relationship in the non-human world. This is an absolute stinking, flagrant lie. And it is as close to a criminal act as any true crime that was ever committed. It is a criminal act to teach this and perpetrate this lie on the minds of human beings. And the time has come to turn the tables. The time has come to show those same species predators how the prey-predator relation, how the prey-predator behavior in our species really works. And so, to conclude this talk, let me point out that the human species is exceptional among the animals in Gaia's symbiosis on two counts. First of all, we have no pre-selected prey. I discussed this point in my essays on open season on predators. Humans can range all around the world. They can live in the mountains. They can live by the sea. They can live on the sea. They can live in all climates. And in all those climates, they prey upon whatever species they find in those climates that provides we prey on whatever species provided us with food, clothing, and shelter. Because we use their skins, we use their bones, we eat them. And we are the one species of animal on this planet capable of preying on all other species. Why? Because we are assigned a role in the divine experiment on this planet such that we participate in the prey-predator symbiosis, but we do so without an instinctual program that defines selected prey. We do not have selected prey, except in one case we do. And this is where Gaian ethics absolutely turns the game around and gives the same species predators in our midst, a big, big dose of their own medicine.
This is where we take responsibility for the realization that the same species predation in our in humanity requires an act of conscience. It requires becoming deliberate and intentional hunters of those predators who arise in our own midst. So those predators think that they will be the dominators. They think that they will be the dominators because they are insane and they need to believe that to continue in their control game and they are totally out of control. What they have yet to realize is that once they are identified, once the psychopaths in our society are identified, the terms of engagement entirely change for everyone who has the conscience and the guts for this game. Once we can identify that there are human beings like global financiers, CEOs of corporations who systematically and intentionally poison the earth, uh, CEOs and medical doctors who actually promote programs uh, to uh, ensure that cancer and other diseases are not wiped out uh, can, when they can be cured, who suppress the cures of these diseases, uh, those in, in, in the media who corrupt uh, the social dialogue by deliberate lies and manipulation. These are the motley crew of predators we are learning to identify. And once we identify those predators, it's open season. Instead of having them prey on the entire human race, which they think is their God-given right, some members of the human race take the responsibility to prey on them, to select those predators for elimination. And this is a unique case in our species, and it is a unique foundation of Gaian ethics. The recognition of the necessity to do this for the survival of our species as a whole and also for the, to give uh, people living in this world today the chance to have a fair and equitable world where they can cooperate, live in mutual aid, enjoy each other, sort out their differences peacefully and move on with life. We don't have that opportunity as long as the same species predators are breathing down our necks with their programs of crime, uh, fraudulent science, uh, media corruption, media lies, and so forth. So that is the challenge we face. And I am convinced that we are seeing in the year 2012 the turning point in this challenge, possibly time to August, when the apogee of the moon touches the fulcrum of the scales. Now, if my intuition is right, and I'm taking this process in the right direction and using the correct syntax, I would say we stand a tremendous chance for a, a radical, radical turnabout in human affairs and that turnabout would come by the focus of the human mind and of the social and collective uh, awareness on one particular factor, one particular realization, that those who follow the ideology of domination, who follow the false Darwinian paradigm, paradigm of survival of the fittest, are themselves unfit. The great tragedy and the great perversion of life in our world today in the 21st century is that society is led on all fronts, education, finance, government, military, media, by the most unfit specimens of our society. We are led by the unfit. We are led by those who are unfit to survive. 
and who can only be in positions of control and leadership and power because they cheat, because they lie, because they use murder and extortion. They could not fairly get to those positions of power. There is not one single person in any realm of life today, be it from finance to entertainment to government, who could be at the pinnacle of uh, power where they stand in the illusion of power, but nevertheless the illusion works, who could be in a role of power, let's say, and who could be exercising authority. There is not one single person of that type who could have got there legitimately and honestly. They are there because they are unfit and because they use the system of deceit and extortion that the unfit must use, that they are forced to use because they cannot compete fairly and equitably with other people any more than they can cooperate fairly and equitably with other people. And so we are looking in the 2012 breakdown, not at the survival of the fittest, but at the end of domination by the unfit.